If you guys have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up to Psalm 52. We're going to take a look at, hopefully, prayerfully, Psalm 52, 53, and 54. And as we, as we do so, uh, prayerfully, our, our hearts will be open to, to receive that which the Lord has for us. And Psalm 52, as we take a look, it begins with this uh, title. It says, To the chief musician, a contemplation of David, when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Just so we kind of remember what's going on, Doeg was a shepherd, and he's just out taking care of his sheep one day, and he notices David come in to the priest, Ahimelech, and he comes to the priest. You may remember, he, he has no food. He's kind of ragged. It's been rough. He comes to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech helps him. Remember the showbread, incident with the showbread? David's given showbread. He's able to feed uh, his men, he's able to take care of them. Uh, if I remember right, he gets Goliath's sword during that time so that he has uh, a weapon to be with him. It was just a low time for David, and, and he finds help. But Doag, who's an Edomite, who's out uh, taking care of his sheep, he looks and he, he recognizes an opportunity for self-promotion. And one of the things we see when we look at the life of David is that David was never a man to self-promote. So David didn't go out and try to make a name for himself. When David was in his teens, early teens, the, the prophet had come to his house. We remember the story, right? He came to his house. He looked over all the sons of, of uh, Jesse and said, uh, none of these guys are the one that God has chosen for king. Don't you have any more sons? And he said, oh yeah, we got one. He's a ruddy kid. He's out with the sheep. Surely you don't want him. So he says, go get him. And he goes and gets him and brings him. And, and the Lord says, that's the one. And so he's anointed with oil. And God tells him as a teenager, I'm going to make you king. From that moment in David's life, he never takes that matter into his own hands. He never goes out and says, look, I'm going to make myself king. I'm going to accomplish this. He could have killed Saul any number of times. But he never does. Because God said he would make me king. So, God will do it. And I'll just continue doing what I can to serve the king who's here. Now, at this point in David's life, Saul has thrown him out, given his wife away. David's on the run. He's living in caves. He's homeless. Uh, he doesn't have any place that he can call home, any place that he can go and hang out. He finds some help from this priest. And as he finds help from this priest... Doag becomes the antithesis of that which is David. Doag becomes the self-promoter. He says, I got an opportunity. I'm a little lowly shepherd, but if I go and tell Saul about what David's done, I can get elevated. I can rise up. I can become more important, more powerful. I can get more money. Maybe I can get a raise. And so that's the, the, the point of the psalm. Now what happens is Doag goes... And he tells him, and when Doag tells him, Saul sends Doag back to kill Ahimelech and all his family. He kills them all, wipes them out. There's one survivor, and David takes that survivor with him and says, the same man that hunts you hunts me. You'll be safe with me. But he's filled with a burden 
over, he got killed because he gave me bread. He got killed because he helped me. And this, this dirty, no good shepherd, he, 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 he's the cause. He's the one who has done the work, who caused this thing. So when we look at Psalm 52, just remember from whence it comes. Look how he begins. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Again, Bible's full of sarcasm. This is a sarcastic statement. It's kind of like the sarcastic statement when Gideon was down in the hole and the angel comes to him and says, Oh, mighty man of valor. Gideon's down in the hole. He's not acting like a mighty man. Doag is a mighty man, but not mighty in deed, not mighty in... In his ability to, to make war, he's mighty in his ability to boast in evil. So Doag is proud of what he's done. He wiped out this whole family, elevated himself. David, on the other hand, is living homeless and refuses to self-promote. One is a way that seems right to a man. The other is a way that seems right to God. And a lot of times we find ourselves vacillating between those two paths. What path are you going to take? The path of David that says, I don't need to self-promote. I can trust God. God is able. Or do I want to follow the way of Doag who says, you know, if I don't make something happen for me, nobody else will. One trusts God implicitly, even though he's homeless and has nothing. He holds to the promise that one day he's going to be king. The other, he's tired of being down low, being in a lowly place. He wants to elevate himself. So he does so. Anytime we elevate ourselves, this is the way it works out. You hurt people. you got to shove somebody down to pull yourself up. you got to put somebody under your boot in order to elevate self. And so that's what he did. So he says, he begins with this. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man, you hero of doing evil? For the goodness of God endures continuously now that's a reminder for us something that we always have to remember because sometimes we find ourselves in a place and we think oh man it's this this guy has ruined anything good that god can do was that true if it's true then the then the promise in romans 8 28 isn't very good what's the promise of romans 8 28 for we know all things work together for good to those who love god and are called those who love god and are called the things that happen in their life was david loved of god was he called to be king so then the promise would be no matter what doag does the goodness of god will endure god hadn't forgotten his promise god wasn't slack concerning his promise god's purposes are his own david's job was to wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord and allow God to do the work. And as he writes this psalm, that's what he's reminding himself. Because I'm sure he's frustrated. I'm sure he'd like to go take Doag out. But he reminds himself, the goodness of God endures continually. That your tongue devises destruction. Like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Look at this uh, description of the, of the, uh, the man who follows his own way. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. So this is the the man who self-promotes, who sets himself 
as, if you will, his own God. He's going to make his own decisions. He won't wait on the Lord and what God wants. He's going to make his own way. He's going to do his own thing. And the things that set him apart, he loves evil. Now, sometimes when we get that picture in our mind, he loves evil, and we think, you know, I don't know what we think. We think that's some dark character doing horrible things. But is that what evil is? The Bible describes evil a little bit differently. The Bible describes the path of evil as the path that goes away from God. So just think about your life and the decisions and the choices you make and the directions that you go. Anytime you take a direction that is in opposition to where you know God's calling you, you have become a lover of evil. Because if you're a lover of good, you'd be following God. It's not always about some horrific event. It's about turning your back on the most holy, turning your back on God's direction, God's plan and purpose in your life, and making your own. You love evil more than good. Do we love what God loves? Or we decide, no, God really doesn't know what's best or what's good, so, so I don't necessarily want that. Then we find ourselves loving evil. Do you love lying rather than speaking what's right? Speaking what's true? Do you love just taking the easy way? Do you love all devouring words? In other words, are you a gossip? That's what Doeg did. He went and told the king, you won't believe what these guys did. They helped out David. They should all die. And then Doeg is the guy who gets to go kill them all. To take the army of Saul to elevate himself. Because of his devouring words, he spoke words that brought death. Same thing happens when we gossip. A lot of times we worry about a lot of different sins, a lot of sins that we think ought to be listed in the top ten, but we forget gossip is one of those listed in the six things God hates. Got to let it go. Got to let it go. But this was what marked this guy. But then he turns his eyes toward God and he says, God shall likewise, God shall likewise, God will in the same way that you've done what you've done, God will destroy you forever. That's, he's, what he's talking about is not obliteration and the ceasing to exist. What he's talking about, one day God's judgment will come and that judgment will be permanent. It's a permanent judgment. David is not looking for tomorrow. Sometimes people do us wrong and we'd like that judgment to come tomorrow. The sooner the better, right? The, the sooner that judgment comes, man, that would be great. But here David is saying... One day God's going to judge, and when that judgment comes, it's permanent. He looks for it. It's really words of warning more than words of rejoicing. And this is what he says. This is what will happen to you. You'll be taken, he'll take you away, and he'll pluck you out of your dwelling place. So he's going to remove you, and you're going to be homeless. Now, right now, David's homeless. But one day he's saying, Doag, you this, this path that you've chosen will lead you to homelessness. He said, and it will uproot you from the land of the living. Now he's going <clears> to <throat> contrast that with a green tree in a couple of verses. So it's like a picture of a tree being uprooted. That, that it's taken down, it's pulled away, it has no home, no place to dwell. And the righteous will see and fear and laugh at him 
saying, here is the man who did not make God his strength. So looking at the judgment, the point is, the righteous will see it, and they will have a fear, a reverence of God. It will take them to a, to a place of greater understanding, and they'll look laughing, saying, man, I don't want to be like that guy. So we all tell stories like that. Don't we tell stories where the story, at the point of the story at the end is for us to say, yeah, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be like him. I don't want to find myself in that place. And that's what David's talking about. They're going to come to a point, they're going to come to a place, and they're going to say, man, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to do, I don't want to make that choice. I don't want to be the guy who God has a way and I choose my own way. And that's what David's saying. I don't want to be the guy who who makes his own way. The Bible tells us there's a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof is is, is a way of death. It leads in opposition to what God wants to do. When we read God's word, it's no different than when the prophet stood over David and said, you're going to be king one day. The promises of God's word are that sure for you and I. So when we read them, we may hold to that promise, and that promise may not happen tomorrow. But we can know that that promise will come, and we can say, I'm going to do, I'm going to live my life, I'm going to, I'm going to follow the directions that God gives me. I want to be where and do what God's asking me to do. That's the right way. That's the, the allowing the Word of God to be a light, right, to guide your path. Headlights, so you can see where you need to go. But there also is a way that seems right to a man. And when we do that, not only will we cause damage and hurt to others, there will be death all around us. So David says, man, I, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a guy who doesn't trust in God, who didn't make God his strength, but instead, instead said, I'll be my strength. We're not strong enough. We can't do it. We are not able. We cannot save ourselves. We could not pluck us up from the depths. We cannot keep ourselves. All we can do is trust in the Lord God Almighty. His promise, what He promises, He will do. And if that's what He promises, we hold fast. We hold fast to those things. So look what He says. He says, but, every time we see the word but, in verse 7, the word but is a word of strong contrast. It's almost like turning 180 degrees from what he just said. So first he says, here is a man who did not make his strength in God. But rather than trusting in God, what did he do? He trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in wickedness. So he, he made some choices just so he could get ahead. And really it didn't get him ahead. The Bible's full of characters like this. We meet a guy in scripture called Balaam. You guys remember him? Balaam was a prophet. Balaam was not a Jew. We don't know where Balaam, how Balaam became a prophet. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't really matter. But what we know about the prophet Balaam is he was given an opportunity to get rich by doing something God didn't want him to do. And over and over again, Balaam would ask, God, would it be okay if I just go with these guys? You remember the story. He, he decides to go any, even though God said don't go. And then... He's riding the donkey. Remember the donkey sees the angel? Crushes his leg up against the cliff and he starts beating the donkey and the donkey says, would you stop beating me? I'm saving your life. And he has a conversation with his donkey right there. He's, he's so mad, he doesn't even, he's not even shocked that the donkey's talking. 
And so he continues to want his way, even though God has done everything he can to stop him. <clears throat> so God lets him go. You know that's the same way everybody gets to hell? The hell is not an, an open path. The path to hell is hard. And all along the way, you have God trying to stop you from going that way. Don't go this way. Change your direction. Turn around. But there comes a point, just like there was for Balaam, where God says, okay, if you want to go, go. Don't, I'm not going to let you curse my people. So whatever you think you're going to gain going that way, you're not going to get it. So Balaam goes, he takes and fills his house full of all this gold. There's all the gold he can imagine. He goes to curse the people for the king. That's what they were paying for him to curse the people. He goes to curse them, opens his mouth, and prophesies about the coming of Messiah. And the king gets mad. Dude, I didn't pay you for that. I paid you to curse them. He tries to curse them, he can't. He opens his mouth. If God can make a donkey talk, he can make another kind of donkey shut up. And so that's what God did. He would not let him curse him. So Balaam told the king how to make the children of Israel fall. He said, send down your good-looking women and have them entice them that they might take of them all that they would choose and then have them show them and teach them about their idols and they'll start worshiping false gods and God will bring his own judgment. You know, Balaam, the rest of the story of Balaam is he lived out his life with the enemies of God. And he died in the enemy's camp. He, he dies with the pagans, with a house full of gold. What good did that do him in eternity? None. There's a way that seems right to a man. And I can elevate myself and I can have all the stuff I want. At what price? Remember Jesus told a story about a man, right? He had big barns. And he said, well, my big barns aren't big enough. So I'm going to go out and really work hard this year, and I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to fill those. And finally, when all my barns are full, I'm going to take my ease. And the scripture says, the Lord said, Thou fool, today your soul is required of you. And you made all these plans for your big barns, but you never made a plan for your soul. And the most important thing you possessed has now worked so hard to get down a path God doesn't want people to take. The only way to hell is to step over the broken body of Christ, trample through his blood like it's nothing. It's the only way. So here, <clears throat> Doag is, is receiving that reward, and that's what David's talking about. Look, he's trusting in his riches. He's hoping in, in all the wrong things. And he's, he's going to have a little bit, a momentary, maybe life is good for him for a while. But it won't be that way eternally. And when the promise of David comes true, the end of Doag will come. In verse 8, we begin with another but, right? So but, in strong contrast, turning now 180 80 degrees from trusting in riches and strengthening himself in wickedness, David says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. What was the tree of the other guy? He's an uprooted tree. I mean, that means he's no longer growing. He no longer is receiving sustenance. Can an uprooted tree look alive for a while? 
Sure, I've seen lots of trees torn over, laying over on their side, green leaves. Going to stay that way? Nope, that tree's dead. It just don't know it yet. Contrasted with David who says, I'm a young green sapling. And all I want to do is just stay with my roots in God. Stay in that place where, where I'm following God and I'm obedient to God and I'm living for God and I don't got to be a big tree. I don't got to have a lot of stuff. I just got to be anchored in God. That's what made David a man after God's own heart, right? He says, I am like a green olive tree. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. How are we saved? Two words you got to know, mercy and grace. That's How were they saved in the Old Testament? Mercy and grace. Did the blood of bulls and goats ever pay for their sin? No, it's symbolic. It points to Messiah. So how were they saved? Mercy and grace. God chose to have mercy. God chose to give to them something they could not deserve. The same way he does for us. Mercy and grace. How is it that we are established in God? We trust in God. We trust in his mercy and in his grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. One speaks of the judgment that God doesn't bring. And the other speaks of the salvation that he does. So this is what David is saying. I'm going to trust in the mercy of God. And I will praise you forever. Now he's looking to God. He's, he's, the psalm helps David to look at Doag and say, man, what a dirtbag. How could you do that? How could you see the death of all those people? But as he works his way through the psalm, his eyes come off of Doag and go to the Lord. And the pronouns become personal. And David looks in the eyes of his Savior and he says, I will praise you forever. Because you have done it. Currently, David's living in a cave. He don't have nothing. All he has is promises. But the book of Hebrews tells us that the the heroes of faith, that's what they did. They held the promises of God. Whether they ever saw them fulfilled or not didn't matter. They walked with their eyes on the promises of God, holding fast that God was true and every man a liar. And so David speaks as though all those promises have been fulfilled. I'll praise you forever because you have done it. Because you said it, it's done. Just because you said it, I know it's done. So I'm going to praise you. And that's where the psalm goes. It goes toward praising God, toward giving Him glory. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. So David says, right here in the midst of the congregation with all these people, I'm going to wait for you. So on one hand, he says, I praise you because you've done it. But then the next part of the verse, the, the, the thought that he's, he's bringing uh, in comparison to that thought, he says, and, I, and among the congregation, I'm going to wait for you. David never self-promoted. He never made himself king. He waited until God did it. He could have killed Saul any number of times, but he wouldn't do it. He said, if God wants me to be king, he'll make me king. I don't have to do it. I don't have to make it happen. I just have to trust in him. Jesus said this. He said that the the Gentiles, the heathen, uh, they are always worried about what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear and what they're going to drink and how their life is going to come together. 
and all of these things. And Jesus said to them at the Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't be like those guys worrying about all this stuff. Your father knows what you need. So he said in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. Most of the time we get that backward. We seek everything else. Because we're worried, how am I going to make it happen? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to take care of these things? How am I going to cover the, these expenses? And we take the kingdom of God and we put it on a shelf. Now it doesn't mean, seeking first the kingdom of God doesn't mean I don't have a job and I don't work and I just go out on a corner and preach the gospel. What the kingdom of God, seeking the kingdom of God, means I seek to exalt Christ wherever I'm at. I can do that at work. I, look, I didn't always have this job. According to the newspaper six years ago, I was a street stripper. So I'd have been poor doing that. Fortunately, the reality is I was a street striper. And I painted every road, every freeway, uh, and most of the airports in California. That's what I did. Did it over and over and over and over again. But I can do that to the glory of Christ. I can do that and exalt Jesus. I can do that and exalt the Lord. That's seeking first the kingdom of God. And I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm going to get far enough ahead in the business. Far enough ahead in what I'm doing. I just do whatever I'm doing for the glory of God and let God do what he's going to do in my life. And he'll bring what I need. Obviously, God decided a long time ago I didn't need to be a multimillionaire. So I got, I got no business wanting for that. All I want is what he wants me to have. The things he brings into my life, those are the things he wants me to have. You know, sometimes those things God brings into your life are hard, painful, hurtful, and make you weep and cry and have pain. You know that God declares in the book of Isaiah he brings those things too? So, so we don't get to just shove those things away and say, that. well, that wasn't God. Sure it was. Everything that happens in your life happens in your life, passes through the hands of a God who loves you. And if he allows it into your life, then there's a purpose. And maybe we'll see it and maybe we never will, but we can certainly trust him, right? Like David, I trust you. I believe you're going to keep your promise to me. And God's promise is one day, it's all going to make sense and it's all going to fit and everything you've ever lost will be found in Christ. We hold to the promise. We hold to the promise to keep our eyes on the Lord and he'll bring it about. I will wait on your name for it is good. Is God good? If he's good, then he's always good. Now we come to Psalm 53. Psalm 53 might sound familiar. It is an almost exact uh, Repeat of Psalm 14. You got time? You can look back at Psalm 14 when you want to. Psalm 53 is Psalm 14 with an added verse. You guys ever known like in worship where sometimes somebody will take a, an old hymn and t- change it around a little bit and make it new? The Bible says in Psalm 40, singing to me a new song. And the idea of new is not that you got to go create something new. It's just make it fresh. And so they made it personal. So they take Psalm 14 that had been written years earlier, and they add a verse to make it applicable to something they were going through at the time. 
And so it becomes Psalm 53. So we'll see some familiar things as we look at it. It begins with a familiar phrase, right? You guys have heard this before. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity and there is none who does good. Now first when we look at this word, the word for fool, the English word for fool doesn't always carry across. In Hebrew there's three different words for fool. This is the word Nabal. It should be familiar to you because David meets a guy named Nabal. You remember? <coughs> and Nabal was a knucklehead. Uh, the idea of the fool, the word Nabal, is a... Uh, uh, what's a good way to put it? He's a, he is an unreasonable, brutish, stubborn person. Just... just uh, uh, mean, ornery fool, a guy who is, doesn't, the problem is not that he doesn't understand, he doesn't have evidence, or he doesn't know what's real. The problem is always a problem of morality dealing with this word fool. It's a moral problem, and that moral problem becomes the emphasis behind what he says. The fool, Nabal, the brutish, stubborn guy who has a morality problem, says in his heart, there is no God. It's interesting because when you make that statement, and a lot of people do, when you make that statement, you are surrendering the only worldview that makes sense. I don't care what you do, what dance you dance, you surrender it, you lose it, now you have a worldview that makes no sense. What do I mean? Well, in a Christian worldview, you have a God of order. And a world of design. And purpose behind things that happen. And in that worldview, a lot of things can exist. One of those things being morality. Knowing good from evil. Another one of those things is logic. Well, how can, why is it that logic can exist in a Christian worldview? Because a Christian worldview is based on order. And absolute truth. So logic requires something to be true. If something's not true, if there's no truth, there can be no logic. Logic requires someone to say, a a contradiction of logic requires somebody to say something is A and something is not A at the same time. But if there's no truth, then who cares what A is? It doesn't make any difference. And if everything's random, it's all random. None of it matters. So when someone says in their heart there is no God, they surrender all morality, the understanding of what is good or what is evil, the ability to comprehend or know it. The concept of logic is out the window. So when you have an argument with somebody who who thinks there's no God and they say you're not being logical, they surrendered logic when they gave up the Christian worldview. And they're not allowed to come back to the Christian worldview and borrow logic from us so that they can make sense. And they say, what do you mean? I'm not borrowing from your worldview. Sure you are. Your worldview is random. We're all sacks of biology randomly bumping into each other in cosmos. And what one person says is evil and another person says is good, who cares? Life is random. Who cares? It doesn't make any difference. You surrendered it. That's why the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. You've lost All reason, all ability to reason, all ability to understand is gone. The problem is, and the reason why the Bible calls him a fool, 
is because he doesn't live that way. Does he? Does he live his life like logic doesn't exist? Does he live his life like there's no truth? No, he lives his life like something else is true. And he lives his life still following the... He gets up every morning the same time, the same way, goes to work the same... Why? Because he expects there to be uniformity. How can there be uniformity if the world is all random? There is no uniformity. Uniformity requires a Christian worldview. It requires a God of design, not of random chance. So... If he, if he gets up in the morning, he gets up in the morning at the same time because he expects the same thing to happen. He expects the sun to be in the sky in the morning, not the moon. He expects everything to remain uniform. He lives his life as though there is a God. But he proclaims there is no God. So the Bible says he's a fool. And it tells us the root of the problem. It is a moral problem. Romans chapter 1 tells us that Though they knew God, they did not exalt or worship God, but chose rather to worship the creature, the created thing, rather than the creator. The attitude of people is, I don't want to follow that. I don't want to follow those rules. I don't want to follow that concept. I don't want to bring myself under the headship of a God that requires something for me. So I abandon it all. So I can live my life how I want to live my life. So the Bible says, that's the mark of the fool. The fool who says in his heart, there is no God. They are, what's the word? Corrupt. They are corrupt. They're depraved. They are, or they have done abominable iniquity. In other words, they commit horrible sin. Why? Because that's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. They choose that worldview because in that worldview they can say, uh, there's, you can't tell me what's right or wrong. I can do anything I want. That's okay, but you can't use it again <laughs> to support your, your point, to support your view on life. Look, there is none who does good. When we talk about that, sometimes we, we need to recognize when the Bible says there's no one who does good, The Bible is talking not about what you think is good. The Bible is telling you what God thinks is good. What does God think is good? Well, it's really simple. It goes down to one thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. So when the Bible says there is no one who does good, what's he saying? Nobody loves God without God first revealing himself to them. Nobody seeks after God. Nobody's looking to love God. Nobody's looking for that opportunity. Until God has revealed himself to them, and they have reached out by faith, they'll lay hold of what he's revealing to them, and then at that point they can become a seeker. Then at that point they they can become someone who does good. And so the scripture lays it out. No one does good. It says that God is looking down from heaven upon the children of man. To see if there is any who understand or who seek after God. The idea is as God looks over his creation, nobody is looking back. So what does God do? He reveals himself. That's what it talked about in Romans chapter 1. That that the attributes of the invisible God are made evident through creation. That there is a, 
a general call, that there is a general revealing of himself that God does to all the world so that the world can recognize that there is a God. So when the fool says there is no God, it's not because there's no evidence or a lack of evidence in his life. It's because he loves sin rather than God. That God has shown that he knows, he feels it in his heart. He recognizes it. That's why the Bible calls him Nabal. A fool who says there is no God. Stubborn, brutish, who loves his sin rather than who loves God. Now think back to John chapter 1. You guys remember John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. What's the Bible tell us in John chapter 1? The Word became flesh, right? Dwelt among us. So Jesus Christ, God the Word, comes, becomes flesh, is walking on earth. We come to John chapter 3, and we read about God so loved the world that He did what? He gave who? His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him, right, would not perish but have everlasting life. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. And this is the condemnation of the world. Do you remember what he said? That light has come, but men love the dark because their deeds are evil rather than the light. That's the same thing David's writing about here in the psalm about the fool. The reason the fool doesn't come to God is not because there's not enough evidence. that's That's a fallacy. Evidence is not what they lack. What they lack is the willingness to submit to God and His plan. It has nothing to do with the, the evidence for God's existence. Everybody talks about crazy things like leaps of faith, right? You guys remember I was talking a few Sundays back about epistemology. Epistemology is a study of how we can know anything. There is no such thing except in... I want to say mathematics of something that is 100% absolute in terms of how we know. Everything else is taking all the evidence and developing probability. And that probability leads us to a decision. Right? That's why sometimes the same evidence can lead people in two different directions. Because one guy sees in the probabilities this, and another guy sees in the probabilities that. Everyone takes a leap at some point. Everyone has to live their life on this earth by faith in something. That's real. It's not a question of evidence. It's a question about your own will and what you will, are willing to submit to, to allow God to do in and through us. Look at verse 4. He says, have the workers of iniquity no, no knowledge? This is what David's saying. Do the people who sin not have an understanding that they're sinning? Seriously. Right? You're not going to try to sell that to me, that the guy who sins doesn't know he's sinning. Yeah, they know they're doing something wrong. You see it in every infant you can see them get that grin on their face when they, you know, and you know too, you just told them, don't touch that. And you see them get the grin, what do they do? They reach out to touch it. Is it because they don't know it's wrong? Because they don't know you want them not to touch it? 
<laughs> no, they know. They know. And they do it anyway. Do the workers of iniquity do so? Do people sin because they have no knowledge? Who eat up my people like their bread? God has revealed himself to creation and every man, woman, and child. Even if we never put ourselves in a relationship with God, you'll be judged by your conscience. You want to be judged by your conscience? Let's remove the Bible. Let's forget about the Bible. Okay? We'll just follow the Bible's rules. The soul that sins shall die. You ever done something that you knew was wrong when you did it? Oh, bummer. You're guilty according to your conscience. You're in the same place. I haven't used the Bible. And if you say, no, I've never done something I knew was wrong, I'm going to say, you just did. You know that's a lie. You know you have. You know there was a time and in your conscience you were saying, I shouldn't do this. And you did it anyway. So that makes us all guilty, even if we don't use the Word of God. That's what the book of Romans is talking about. Your conscience condemns you. God's saying, I don't need, I don't need anything else. I just use your conscience. We'll let your conscience be your guide. If your conscience ever condemned you, then you knew. Where did that come from? Random chance, right? Molecules bumping into each other and bloop, we got a morality. Right? Because there's somewhere, right, on the world... And some hidden tribe somewhere where pedophilia is okay, right? Oh, no, that's right. That's wrong every society. I wonder why that is. Well, just random chance? Of course not. It can't exist in random chance. It can only exist in design. He says, they do not call upon God. Then verse 5. This is a verse that's different from Psalm 14. It says, there... They are in great fear where no fear was. So he's talking about the fool, said in his heart, there is no God. He has no fear of God. He doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe God exists, but then he speaks in this way. Now obviously this is written about some battle, something that took place that, that where, where God showed himself mighty to those who didn't believe he existed. Most people point to Shennacherib. You guys remember Shennacherib? Shennacherib was a Syrian king who comes to destroy Judah. Uh, you probably remember this part. 185,000 soldiers wiped out by one angel in one night. Okay, so most people think that's what... We, we can't say that for sure, but, but that's what a lot of scholars think he's talking about. So they, in that example, they had no fear of God. They kept saying, your God can't save you from us. And in one night, where there was no fear, there was great fear. Yeah, Shennacherib, right? Um, it just reminds me of Mikrib. That might be why. For, <laughs> for God has scattered, <laughs> for God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. So this is where they get the picture of Shennacherib. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. So it's it's a deliverance. God does something, delivers an army into the hands of Israel. So what they're saying is, look, you're foolish because you don't believe in God. You surrender your worldview. It doesn't make any sense. You can't make sense of your of your world anymore. Once you surrender that, you 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 you. Well, how is it that he said it in uh, in Romans that the wise have become fools, right? Professing themselves or that Corinthians professing themselves to be wise. They became as fools and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. So, verse 6. 
Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Now, looking to the future. Oh, that salvation would come when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So, probably written from a time of exile. Probably going through a time when they are currently cut off. And they're looking for a future uh, salvation from God. That God would bring them back into the land. And a day when, once again, the nation would be able to rejoice. Then, we go to 54. Now, 54, again, has a title of it. 54 is uh, written by David. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is David not hiding among us? So in the first story, remember in 52, it was Doeg. Doeg who betrayed David. Now when we come to 54, it is the Ziphites. The Ziphites are his own people though. Doeg was an Edomite. The Ziphites are like family. So in one story, he's betrayed by someone he doesn't really know. And the other story, he's betrayed by brothers. Let's look what he says. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Again, David is living his life by the promise of God. God said, this is going to happen. One day I'm going to be king. And I'm not always going to have to hide from Saul. You, you, just so you can remember the story, the Ziphites go and they tell Saul, hey, David's hiding among us. And so Saul says, well, where exactly is he? And he says, oh, he's on this mountain. So Saul comes out, and as he's looking and scouring the hills, he falls asleep. And as he falls asleep, he's laying right beside Abner, his general, and David comes sneaking into the camp. And he stands right over the body of Saul. He could have pinned him to the ground with a spear. But he just cuts his his robe, his hem, and then shouts to him from the top of the mountain and says, Hey, I was right there. I could have killed you. And it's one of, I think, three times where Saul responds and says, Oh, you're right. I'm not being a very good friend. David, I'm sorry. I won't hunt you no more. So it's that event that brings forth this psalm, Psalm 54. So he's saying to God, Deliver me. God, I want you to save me. I want you to save me by your name. What is God's name? The becoming one. Yahweh. He is the becoming one. That's why the Hebrew concept of God's name is the phrase, I am. That's why I am is such a big deal in the New Testament. When we read where Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And people say, oh, Jesus is just saying, unless you believe he exists. No, he's not. He's declaring himself to be almighty God. He uses the ego, I, me. He's declaring himself to be the becoming one. Otherwise, when he said, before Abraham was... I am. That doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense in Hebrew anymore, and it makes sense in, in or Greek anymore, and it makes sense in English. What's he saying? Before Abraham was, I am eternal God. I am the becoming one. I am everything you need. And so David is saying, save me by your name. What's his name? The God of my salvation. The God who becomes what I need. David needs someone to save him. David needs someone to watch over him. David needs a protector. Whatever David needs, God is. That's why God's name is I am. I'm what you need. Whatever it is. So save me by your name and vindicate me. This guy keeps hunting me, God. Would you just get him off my case, man? Don't worry. When God's judgment comes, this is why God's judgment is slow and we don't understand it. 
We want God's judgment on the people who hurt us now. But God knows his judgment is permanent. And God's slow to bring permanent judgment on anybody. He was slow to bring it on Judas. And he'll be slow to bring it on anybody else. And the Bible says God's not slack concerning his promises. The way some people view slackness. But he's long-suffering, desiring that no one would perish. God's goal is that man would call on him and live. Not that man would be judged. Will there be a judgment day for everybody who ever hurt? Yep. Guaranteed. And it won't be a happy time. Won't be a happy time for nobody. God's judgments are permanent. They're set. We don't get to undo God's judgment. When that judgment falls, it's done, finished. So, he's asking, vindicate me. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Hear what I'm saying. For strangers, that word for stranger means the insolent or the arrogant, have risen up against me. Now, it's not strangers. It's his own kin. People from his own tribe. That means cousins. The Ziphites, the people that were from the same tribe he was from. So it says, Strangers, insolent and arrogant people have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. I've been betrayed. They have not set God before them. Remember what I said? There is a way that seems right to a man. But if God's not the direction we're walking towards, we're always going the wrong way. There's a way that seems right. Oh, it's just a little compromise. It's just a little thing. I, I know that, that it, this, this relationship goes against my moral views, but, but man, I just am lonely, so, so I want it. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is a path. It's a way of death. It's a way of destruction. It's a way of more pain, greater pain, greater sorrow. I, I, I wish I had a nickel for every time... I heard somebody come in my office and say, Jack, you want to get married? And I said, oh, that's exciting. Marriage, that's always good. So what's the person's name? They tell me their name. It's, oh, are they a believer? No, no, but they, they'll, get, they'll be one one day. Oh, you're kidding me, right? Oh, you know, God didn't really mean it when he said, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. He didn't? He meant go ahead and... and, and be unequally yoked and hope for the best? Well, yeah, there's places in the Bible that talk about people being married to unbelievers. Yeah, that doesn't mean God said go do it. That means God knows you're a knucklehead and you're going to do dumb stuff. And so he makes provision for the dumb stuff that we do. That don't mean go do the dumb stuff. That's like those crazy people who say Abraham had multiple wives, so we should have multiple wives. Why? Solomon had a thousand and everybody wonders to this day, how could he be the wisest guy in the Bible and have that many wives? Well, the Bible says he had that many wives, so we should probably have that many wives. No, we shouldn't. The Bible's pretty clear in Genesis. You know, that's the first book. For this reason, a man, that's single, and a woman, that's single, should, be, should leave their father and mother, be joined together and become one flesh. That's God's perfect plan. One man, one woman. 
But God's people didn't always do that. Yeah, God's people did a lot of dumb stuff. God's people threw all their jewelry into a fire and said a idol popped out and they all started dancing naked around the idol. Are you going to do that? Oh, no, that's ridiculous. Well, why would you want to do the other? Just because somebody is dumb doesn't mean you have to follow them. Look, you've heard it said the experience is the best teacher. That's a lie. Experience is the harshest teacher. And usually her lessons aren't remembered. But she ain't the best teacher. The best teacher, that's right here. The word says it. I believe it. That should settle it, right? So that's what, that's, we want to do things God's way. We want to follow, we want to put our eyes on God and head toward God. And then we won't see sorrow that's brought about by our own decision. That doesn't mean we won't see sorrow. But it means I won't bring sorrow because I got off track. I'm going to follow God. Whatever way it takes me, wherever he leads me, that's where I go. Look at verse 4. You can almost see David's eyes starting to turn toward the Lord, right? Behold, God is my helper. What's he saying? God's with me. He's here. He's going to help me. I, I, I don't have to get stressed out about the situation or this betrayal. I know God is with me. God's going to fulfill the promise that he gave me. God's my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. The people who watch over me, the people who are with me, the people who help me. One of those guys' name was Uriah. You remember him, right? Apparently he had a hot wife. Uriah the Hittite and his wife's name, Bathsheba. One of those that he says right here, the Lord is with those who uphold my life. One of the guys fighting with David during this time. One of the mighty men of David was that guy. Uriah. Same guy that he's praising here. He will repay my enemies for their evil. David doesn't self-promote. Did David go kill Saul when he could? Nope. Did David go to war against them? Nope. In fact, when David joined the Philistines, he, he suddenly disappeared whenever they were supposed to fight against God's people. He was not where he was ever supposed to be then. God was with him. God was watching over him. He, he said, the Lord will repay. He trusted God for his judgment. He says, cut them off in your truth. Cut them off in your truth. You know what happens when a fool says in his heart, there is no God. When a guy turns away from what God's doing and falls his own path, he stops being able to recognize the truth. The Bible talks about having our conscience seared with, as with a hot iron, right? Because there's a time where you feel guilty about what you're doing. You guys all know that, right? You guys know that when the, when the first group of Germans turned around to shoot a bunch of kids in a concentration camp, that they all didn't feel good about doing it. And they didn't want to pull the trigger. And they were having problems. Their conscience was upsetting them and bothering them. And, and they were a little uptight, but they did it. Over and over. And all of a sudden, the only thing that bothered them was they'd get a headache. They no longer saw people. And they could no longer recognize truth. Don't you know that's how people do evil things to other people? They burn their conscience with a hot iron. So that they can't tell truth from a lie. That's a judgment from God. You keep banging up against the donkey and saying, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. Eventually God steps out of the way. But when you walk down that path... 
As you walk by, your conscience is seared and you don't feel anymore. That's the judgment that David's asking for here. Cut them off in your truth. And then he makes a, a, a profession of his own will. I will freely sacrifice to you. A free sacrifice was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Uh, a drink offering. Um, sacrifice he didn't have to do. He wants to do. Why does he want to sacrifice? Because he loves God. The soul that loves God wants to express its love and praise. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble. And my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. David's saying, look, I've seen what's coming. I've seen what that's going to be like. And I'll just wait for God to take care of it. I don't need to take care of it on my own. God knows what he's doing. And most of the time, he don't need our help. He's got all that handled. What does he want from us? What is it that David's giving us the example here? Set your eyes on the Lord and walk with him. Walk toward him. Head in his direction. And if something comes up, a desire in our life, or a challenge in our life that wants to point us in a different direction than toward God, you can know that's not from him. So just keep walking. And all those things you long for and desire, those relationships that you want, those successes that you want in, in life, they'll come because you're walking toward God and He'll bring them in. He'll exalt you. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. You just keep walking toward God. Pretty soon that job comes. That direction, that change in your life happens. You're serving the Lord and you look over and there's the person who's going to be your spouse. You just keep walking with him. You don't need to make it happen. Just follow him. And in the end, that reward of looking into his face and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, is worth way more than you're ever going to get here. By making your will be done here. What was the prayer Jesus told us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Not my will. His. I'm following him. And he, I promise you, will lead you to the promised land. Amen? Why don't we pray? Why don't you stay with me? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.